It certainly wasn't good for Jesus, but it was good for you and good for me. This brief afternoon, we're going to look at a very small window, a passage in the Bible from John chapter 19, verses 29 and 30. For the last five years, I've been looking at with you the brief sayings from the cross of Calvary. And this year, we find ourselves in the sixth window of the sixth saying that's recorded in the New Testament about what Jesus said from the cross. John chapter 19, verses 29 and 30. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Heavenly Father, thank you that you had a plan from the very, very beginning that you would rescue us, that you would redeem us, and that you would reconcile us to yourself. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we meditate and consider our glorious Savior, his marvelous sacrifice, the wonderful work That, Lord, our hearts would be filled with joy. And that, Lord, we would consider your plan and its ultimate purpose. So that we could know you, love you, experience friendship and fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 19 in verse... 29 we read, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it into his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. On the day that Jesus died, the scripture records seven statements, seven windows that allow us a peek into the character of Christ and lessons for those who desire to see into the heart of Jesus and and into the heart of God. One saying is given and repeated by Matthew and Mark. Three by Luke and three by John. All seven sayings fall into two broad categories or two broad groups. The first three into one group, the last four into another group. Three words were spoken to God the Father by Jesus the Son. Four were words that were spoken to the people who had gathered around the cross of Calvary. These were the people who were closest to Jesus. Briefly, the first window and word is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
The second window is found in Luke 23, 43, where we read Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. The third window is found in John chapter 26, verse 27, where Jesus says to John the apostle and to Mary his mother, woman, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother. The fourth window is found in Matthew 27, verse 46, where Jesus says the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth window is found in John chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus cries, I thirst. The sixth window is found here in John chapter 19. Verse 30, it is finished. The seventh window is found in Luke 23, verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Three of the seven sayings are prayers to God. The first, fourth, and seventh are addressed to God the Father. The fifth saying is a petition to those who God used as an instrument of his crucifixion. The last, the final words of Jesus are taken from the Old Testament where we receive insight into Christ's source of comfort and hope as he bows his head and dismisses his spirit. When Jesus commits his spirit to God, he brings all believers near to God. When Jesus commits himself into the Father's hands, he commits us into the Father's hands. But today, our window and our focus is on the fifth window, where Jesus says the words, It is finished. It's a word that speaks of triumph and victory and celebration. This isn't the whimper of a disillusioned deity disappointed in the disaster that we call humanity, but rather it is the triumph of God as the plan of salvation and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation finds its accomplishment for every person who's estranged from God. The first window allows us to see love that forgives. The second window allows us to see love that transforms. The third window allows us to see a love that provides. The fourth window allows us to see a love that questions. The fifth window allows us to see a love that suffers. But this window... Our window, the sixth window, allows us to see a love that triumphs. The seventh window allows us to see a love that surrenders. It might seem odd to you to use words like victory and triumph. They're strange words on Good Friday. 
But Paul in Colossians hints at this glorious triumph. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 where he says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There, there, on the cross. Jesus disarmed the cosmic powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, leading them as captives in the triumphant procession Paul writes about in Corinthians. The Lord, the Lord can never be defeated. You see, the cross looked like a defeat, but God can't be defeated. God can be resisted. God can even be opposed. God can be attacked. But ultimately, ultimately the outcome will always be the same. And the outcome is never in doubt. In verse 29, we look at the accomplishment of love. We saw it on the video Now as a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it into his mouth. The fifth statement that Jesus cried was, I thirst in John chapter 19 verse 28. The psalmist in Psalm 69, 21 predicted for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. The soldiers filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on a hyssop branch, a stalk, if you will, which is very much related to the caper plant. It was a stalk that was about two to three feet long. And hyssop was a plant that was used in antiquity both in Egypt by the Jews when they were enslaved It was used at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. We read, Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb and you shall take a bunch of hyssop. You will dip it in blood, that is, in the basin of the blood, and you'll strike the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door until the morning. In antiquity, the Jews would take the blood that had been sacrificed, and they would dip the plant with the hyssop, and they would use it as a gigantic brush to mark the entryway into their homes. And it was told by God that you'll put this over your door so that the death angel will look and see the blood. When promising to deliver the Jews from Egyptian slavery, God used four terms to describe that redemption. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. In verse 6 it says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you. I will make you my people. Throughout history, some observant Jews have believed that the four cups of the Seder... Or the four cups of the Passover. Symbolized freedom. 
Many Jews, even to this day, will speak of the cup of freedom of the multiple exiles from Babylon, from Persia or Media, and from Greece and from Rome. But the promise that God made to his people was to deliver them, to rescue them, to redeem them, and then to take them and reconcile them as his people. And that's why even on the video when you saw the cups, there was a fourth cup and then a fifth cup. It was the cup of the wrath of God. It is the cup that Jesus drinks from deeply. It says in verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. In both Matthew's gospel, we we read in chapter 27, verse 50, Jesus, when he cried out again with a loud voice, the Bible says, yielded up his spirit. In Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 37, it says, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice. In Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, we hear about the volume of his voice, but we don't hear about the content of that statement until we read John's gospel. Jesus drinks the bitter cup as if if to clear his throat for one last statement. And he'll say the words, in our language, it is, it is finished. In the Greek language in which this gospel was written, it's the single word tetelestai. That singular word has been found on ancient receipts. It was a word that was used to describe payment that had been paid in full. It means to completely and fully satisfy a debt. The entire work of redemption is complete. That is the statement that Jesus is saying. It is finished. It should cause each and every one of us to ask the question, what is it that's finished? Why, it's the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is finished. The substitution is complete. The reconciliation is made possible. The propitiation has been given. And propitiation is just a great big word which means that God is completely satisfied with the payment. Remission. Redemption. Justification. Preservation. God's plan to save sinners to save you to save you and me it's complete what was the darkest moment in all of human history this moment Christ's crucifixion what is the brightest moment in all of human history This moment, the crucifixion, and then Jesus' subsequent resurrection. 
the tragedy of Calvary took place in reality, in time, in space. A real Jesus will really die, but it also reveals the ever-present ache of a father's heart for his children, for you. This is the picture of the Lord who suffers and continues to suffer until his prodigal children return home. You see, a religion that costs nothing probably means nothing. And when Jesus shouted to tell us die, something happened. Hell trembled. Chains fell off. Prison walls crumbled. Barriers once strong collapsed. The closed gates of heaven were swung open wide. And salvation and reconciliation became possible. These are not the words that describe the completion of his sufferings, but the completion of the task. Jesus isn't simply saying, Finally, it's over. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, finally, it's over for you. Forgiveness is possible. Cleansing is possible. Reconciliation is possible. The Bible says that this is the fulfillment of the plan of God. This is the fulfillment of the plan of salvation. This isn't the whimper of a sad man piled high with unbearable afflictions. This is the victory shout of triumph and obedience to his father's will. Paul reminded the Philippians of, in, in, in Philippi that a perfect obedience and a profound humility is exactly what Jesus accomplished when Paul wrote Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That means he made himself nothing. So that you could be something. He makes himself nothing. So that you can experience everything. Taking the form, read nature. Taking the form or the nature of a servant. Coming in the likeness of men. And being in the found in the appearance of man. He humbles himself and he becomes obedient to the point of death. Even to the death of a cross, the Bible says. And this is the final shout of triumph. Of a life lived in perfect humility. Of a life lived in perfect submission to his father. In perfect obedience to the plan of God. And the reason Jesus could say it is finished, it's because the plan has come to fruition. The mission has been accomplished. Jesus isn't simply saying my life is over. He's saying that your life is just beginning and will continue forever. Because the bridge that satisfies God's wrath and the bridge that demonstrates God's love has now come We get a hint of it at the very beginning 
of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where we hear an angel say, And she will bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to seek, the Bible says, and to save that which was lost. Long before you were ever born, long before you ever drew your first breath, long before you said your first word, long before you cried your first tear, long before you asked your first question, Jesus was thinking about you, preparing for you. Jesus will give his life for you. And the Bible says that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. But what that means is that because his plan has come to pass, we can live lives of profound purpose. You know, it says at the end of verse 30, in bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. There is a final word that, that Christ breathes before he bows his head and dismisses his spirit. It's that passage that's found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. It's the seventh saying. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Believing Christ died, that's history. Believing that Christ died for you, that's salvation. You see, Christians don't mark this date simply historically. But we mark it for a very good reason. This day, in time and space, salvation is accomplished so what does it all mean for you and me? Well, it means that instead of being objects of God's wrath, you're an object of God's love. You're the benefactor of the sacrifice. Did Christ have a mission? The answer is yes. The mission was to save you and to save me. But if you're without Christ, you're treading on dangerous water. You know, in the far north, at the foot of Mount McKinley, a skeleton was found seated on the root of a tree. People would hike up the side of the mountain and they would find the skeleton. And just above was a finger carved in the park, pointing to the skeleton. And beside the finger, there were these words. The skeleton said, this is the end of the trail. What's interesting about this tragic story is that a person set out to climb that lofty mountain, but then he found his strength failed him. He found that his purpose was never, ever accomplished. And if you've ever wondered what your purpose was, why you were ever born, why you're even here, it's found in the person of Jesus. What great mountain have you set out to climb? Are you afraid to give up what is good in order to obtain what is great? The Bible teaches that we've been ruined by sin. And the Bible teaches that we've been redeemed by Christ. 
And the Bible teaches that we can be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Do you have a mission? Do you have a purpose? And has the purpose of your life been revealed? Well, according to the Bible, the purpose of your life is found in his love and his sacrifice. Your life may not seem so clear right about now. You see, you've come here and you've come to this service. And you may be wondering about what you've done in the past or what you might be doing in the future. And your life may not feel like it's so purpose-driven. But having a relationship with Christ invites you to embark on a journey. It's to discern the gifts and talents that God has given to you. It's to live a life of purpose. And in order to live a life of purpose, it has to be a life of focus. And focus demands that you examine your priorities. And you begin to ask and answer a different question. The priority of Jesus' life was and is you. Forgiveness for you. Redemption for you. Reconciliation and salvation for you. By the way, did living a life of purpose for Jesus require sacrifice? The answer is yes. Did it require obedience and submission? I think you know that the answer is yes. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It might have been with these very words in mind as Paul was meditating and considering what had happened on the cross that in Galatians 2.20 he writes, I have been crucified with Christ, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Obedience is the opposite of independent thinking and independent living. You've probably sang the song, Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. You see, Jesus died and the plan of God was fulfilled. Triumph, victory. We celebrate the Savior's victory. Salvation may come quietly, but the truth is, You can never remain quiet once you've had your sins forgiven, once you've been washed and cleansed, once you've been reconciled and the plan of God has been revealed. 
For centuries, we were told that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is absolutely true. We might put that a little bit differently. The purpose of life is a life of purpose on purpose. The purpose of life is a life of purpose on purpose. All of human history was orchestrated for that final moment and that sacrificial death and the revelation that you would one day make your way to this particular place and at this particular time You see, you'll never, ever, ever realize the purpose of your life until you begin to understand that Jesus died for you so you could live with purpose, on purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for a window, a peak, into your character and into the heart of Jesus that we get to see for a brief moment what you were thinking and what you were doing. And Lord, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who perhaps in a dark place and a lonely place questions whether or not their life really does have purpose. And Lord, I pray that you would remind them of your love, of the sacrifice that's been made, of a provision of hope, of the possibility of forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that no person listening to me will remain in a dark place, in an empty place, in the place of guilt. Lord, we pray that we could come into that place of light and life and love and hope. Lord, we pray that everyone everywhere will turn from their sin and that they'll personally, individually, and promptly embrace the purpose of their life to experience your love, to experience forgiveness and hope. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for coming.